In the year 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther pierced the bowels of the Roman Catholic Church with his 95 theses. As he nailed the document to the castle door in Wittenberg, the protest began. It was a costly protest, one that Luther never would have imagined. 500 years later, that protest continues. The Reformation began 500 years ago, but today, the flame of the Reformation continues to burn. Men gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. Beneath the pressures of the Roman Catholic Church, Martin Luther penned the words to his famous hymn, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Luther believed what he wrote and was willing to stand firm, no matter the cost. The Pope referred to Luther as a wild boar because of his unwillingness to submit to the Roman Catholic Church's teachings. This historic protest against the sale of indulgences, the cheapening of God's grace, and the stranglehold on the Bible continued to spread like an unquenchable fire. It seemed as if the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church encompassed the whole world. And then, suddenly, the reformers emerged from the darkness and stood courageously with the torchlight of God's Word. A Latin statement emerged from this Reformation era, post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. In their attempt to gain control, the Roman Catholic Church kindled the martyrs' fires with the flesh of Protestants. Men, women, and children were burnt at the stake for merely teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. As the faithful were burnt at the stake for their faith, their bloodshed was not in vain. As Tertullian once said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In 1536, William Tyndale was burnt at the stake for his translation and printing of the New Testament in English. Following in his footsteps was John Rogers. In 1555, under the rule of Queen Mary I, known as Bloody Mary, Rogers was burned at the stake after completing the Old Testament work of Tyndale in the Bible, known as the Matthews Bible. He was the first of nearly 300 Puritans who would be burned alive for their unwillingness to submit to the rule of the Roman Catholic Church under the rule of Bloody Mary. Although blood continued to be spilt in the streets and threats continued to thunder from Rome, men continued to preach and print the Word of God. Out of the Reformation era came five definitive doctrinal positions these Latin slogans are Sola Fide, by faith alone. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. Sola Gratia, by grace alone. Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. According to John Calvin, justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. The reformers were protesting the abuse of the Roman Catholic Church and the outright perversion of the true gospel. 500 years after Martin Luther's protest, we continue to protest today. 
We protest any teaching that perverts the grace of God. We protest any doctrine that denies the exclusivity of Christ. We protest any group who would add to the sufficient word of God. We protest any movement that seeks the glory of man rather than the glory of God in the salvation of rebel sinners. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We preach Christ. We are Protestant. As a new generation reaches out for the torch of the historic Reformation, we must be prepared to run faithfully with this historic flame. In an ever-changing world of compromise and cultural relativism, we must have unwavering resolve and resolute perseverance. We must be willing to suffer shame and ridicule for Christ's sake. As we protest evil and stand for Christ, we will be hated and despised as fools for the sake of Christ. Nevertheless, we must stand. We are Protestant. Well, good morning. Real glad to see you all this morning. Why don't you grab your Bibles, if you have them. If you don't have your own Bibles, they should be scattered in the pew backs uh, in front of you. We will be really throughout the New Testament, so if you want to begin in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's a good place to start. We'll be looking at a variety of texts this morning because, uh, as you likely guessed from this video, we will be taking a one-week break from our current sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew because uh, uh, this upcoming Tuesday, October the 31st, is a historically significant day. And I'm not talking about Halloween. I'm not talking about candy and trick-or-treating, although that's fun. Because uh, this upcoming Tuesday, October the 31st, marks the 500th year of the beginning of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago on Tuesday, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at the Wittenberg Church and began something that quite literally changed Christianity uh, forever for the better. So why don't you turn there in your Bibles? 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. Glad you all are here, and uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, be pleased with our thoughts and our minds, our, the meditations of our hearts and the thoughts of our, our minds and our prayers. May they be pleasing to you. I pray that you would protect my lips. Help me to, to speak that which is true from your word as we think about the significance of what happened 500 years ago the doctrines that the reformers returned to as they returned to your word. And here, 500 years later, we are so much better because of it, and the, the Reformation begin, uh, continues today in this church and in the church of uh, thousands of Protestant churches throughout this land as we stand upon your word in the gospel of grace alone. We pray that we would be faithful in doing that in Christ's name and God's people together said, amen. Well, a man by the name of William Barclay He once wrote these words. He said, A reformation begins with one person. He need not begin it in a nation. He can begin it in his home or where he works every day. If he begins it in God, no man knows where it will end. Well, friends, some 500 years ago on October the 31st, the year was 1517, a courageous follower of Christ by the name of Martin Luther, sparked a reformation. 
sparked a reformation as he defiantly nailed a copy of his 95 theses to the door at the Wittenberg Castle in Germany. And that action changed Christianity forever. Martin Luther and a whole host of other men and women, faithful believers in Christ, were roused during that time period by the corruption and the abuses that they saw in the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And they spearheaded a movement that eventually led to the creation of thousands of Protestant denominations uh, that exist today, including uh, our very own Grace Bible Church. See, the Reformers were convinced that the church had drifted away from the essential and the original teachings of the faith, especially regarding the doctrine of salvation. They wanted to return to the original gospel of Jesus, to the original message preached by the apostles in the early church. And so they returned once again to the scriptures Instead of indulgences and the mass and relics and other superstitions, they rediscovered the ancient and the original way of salvation, the the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Friends, that reformation continues today, some 500 years later. So what were the foundational truths upon which the reformation began? What were the foundational truths that the reformers held to back then and built their reformation on back then and that we as Protestants, as evangelical Christians, um, what are those foundational truths related to salvation that we stand upon even today? Well, the reformers called them the five solas. The five solas, in in Latin, the word sola simply means alone. Five things that they stood upon, upon which the Reformation was built upon. So this morning, I want us to take a brief look at each of the five solas today and what they mean for us as American evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching Christians right here in Cisna Park, Illinois. The five solas. Let's begin with the sola that was really the foundational sola of the Reformation. Of course, I'm referring to sola scriptura, which the Reformers simply meant scripture alone. The fundamental doctrine of the Reformation was a return to the Bible. Above all, it was a movement birthed out of a rediscovery of the sufficiency and the clarity and the authority of the word of God. Over and against competing authorities in their day, be it the Pope or the Cardinals or this organized church or church tradition, the Reformers believed, friends, as we do, that the Scripture alone is the highest and final authority for us as Christians and for us as a church. See, the question for them, and really the question for us as well, is simply this. What determines what we believe and what determines how we live? In other words, on what is the basis? How, how do we say, how can we be sure of what, what is true and what is false? And, and then what guides and is the authority for how we live our life? Friends, as Christians, it must be sola scriptura. The Catholic Church said it was scripture plus tradition, and tradition often trumped scripture, but the reformers said no. 
No, it must be the scripture alone. The Bible, my brothers and sisters, is the book, is the book that sparked the Reformation. And the Bible is a book that continues to spark Reformation today. Martin Luther, as he stood before the Pope uh, at a meeting called the Diet of Worms, and no, they weren't eating worms, right? Funny name. It was a meeting that he was called to, to give an account for his writings. And as he stood there, he said this, and I quote, Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God, help me. Amen. And with that statement, the Reformation was born. Friends, it was built upon sola scriptura. And as Christians, our consciences must also be captive to the word of God. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. There, Paul teaches us that the Bible is ultimately sourced in God himself. It is God-breathed, and therefore the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, is useful for teaching us what to believe. What shall we believe? Well, the Bible teaches us what we shall believe, and Paul says that the scripture is, is useful for rebuking and correcting us when we sin. That is, the Bible teaches us how we should live, what is right, what what is wrong, and therefore it's also useful to help uh, teach us what a righteous life looks like. Verse 16, all scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, the reformers stood on the word of God and as evangelical Bible-believing Christians, we must stand on it as well. In Mark chapter 7, why don't you turn there with me if you have your Bibles open, you can follow me on the screen. In Acts chapter 7, Jesus teaches us the importance of holding to Scripture over tradition. Scripture over tradition. There in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus teaches us about the importance of following the Bible rather than human tradition, even human religious tradition. He says this of the Pharisees of his day in verse 8. He says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So Christian, let me ask you, are you a sola scriptura Christian? In other words, is the Bible the ultimate authority in your life for what you believe, for what you think, say about heaven and hell, about creation, about human beings made in our image, about sin, about salvation, about marriage, about sexuality? Is it the Bible that informs those things or is it some church tradition, some pastor, some author, some book? Is it culture? Is it the college you went to? Is it the colleagues that you work with? Or friends, is it sola scriptura? Not only that, but what is the authority in your life that determines how you will live your life? Does the word decide what you will do with your body or does the culture or your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Does the Bible determine how you will treat your spouse or your neighbor or does Oprah or The View? Does the Bible determine what you will do when you are wronged, when you are offended, 
Or is it your friends that determine those things? The foundation of the Reformation was sola scriptura, a return to the authority of Scripture alone. And that then leads us to the second sola, sola gratia, which simply means grace alone. Grace alone. See, the Reformers returned to the Scriptures, and they started to read the Bible. And when they read the Bible, they discovered that the gospel that was being preached to them is no gospel at all. It was a false gospel. And when they returned to the Bible, they realized that there was a different gospel that was being preached. It was not the gospel of grace. And so they protested against the Roman Catholic Church, Church's works-based salvation through the mass, through the taking of sacraments, through indulgences. And they returned to the biblical notion of God's grace being the only means of salvation. Salvation, my friends, comes to us entirely as God's generous gift. It is not at all by our good deeds. It is not at all merited, and it does not deserve our cooperation. I think about the gifts that we give at Christmas time. It's a simple illustration, but it always makes the point. At Christmas time, we give gifts to our children, to our spouses, to our loved ones, to our neighbors. And, uh, In a similar way, God's salvation to us is a gift. It is a free gift that he gives to us. Now, at Christmas time, we give gifts to people because we love them, right? We don't give gifts because somehow they are merited or because we anticipate that those people will pay us back, do we? We act out of grace. We give a free gift because our love for them prompts us to do good to those who really don't deserve it. And in a similar way, God's grace is the overflow of his love to the sinner. We are helplessly lost in our sin. We are destined for hell. And God gives us the gift of his grace. The Bible is explicit on this point. We don't come to God by our good deeds or our meritorious works, but only by his giving us what we don't deserve. Friends, turn with me Back to towards the end of your New Testament, there's a little book called Titus. If you find 1 Timothy, you find 2 Timothy, then you will find three chapters, the book of Titus. And there in chapter 3, Paul gives us these great words about the grace of God in salvation, starting in verse 5. Titus 3, 5. <clears throat> Paul says that God, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Martin Luther himself said of these very scriptures, so he, referring to Paul, discards all boasting of human will, all human virtue, all righteousness, and all good works. He said, he concludes that they are nothing and are wholly perverted, however brilliant or worthy they may appear, and teaches that we must be saved solely on the, by the grace of God, which is effective for all believers who desire it from a correct concept of their own ruin and nothingness. So friend, let me ask you an all-important question. Do you depend solely on the grace of God to get you to heaven? 
is, do you see salvation as God's entirely free gift, unmerited to you, or do you think that there is something within you, something that you have done that merits it, that somehow you deserve it, that somehow you have a part to play in it? See, most people miss this fundamental point. And when asked why they will go to heaven, they will say something like, I am a good person. I am not as bad as I could be. I've lived a good life. I try to do my best. I'm better than most people. Or they point to some sort of deed done, some sort of spiritual achievement. I go to church regularly. I was baptized as an infant or as an adult. I was confirmed in the church. I served on various committees. Friends, they point to all sorts of things. Don't be fooled. If these are your answers, you don't understand the grace of God. If these are your answers, you are not a Christian. You are working to get into heaven. You have fallen for a works based gospel rather than the glorious gospel of grace that the reformers rediscovered in the scriptures because because it's sola scriptura salvation in heaven must be sola gratia because we turn to the word of god our salvation must only be by the grace of god but not only must it be by the grace of god but it must be sola fide which is the third the third of five to which we now turn Scripture alone. We're saved by God's grace alone. And we are saved through faith. Faith alone. See, grace and faith go hand in hand in the Bible. Grace and faith go hand in hand like peanut butter and jelly or salt and pepper or pick whatever it is that you would like that you like to go together, right? Grace and faith are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other because if salvation is, is by the means of God's grace, if it's a gift that he gives to us, he offers to us, then it must be received by faith alone. Grace is the means of salvation. Faith is the instrument in which we receive that grace. It's the wire, if you will, by which God's electric grace travels. Stan, you like that illustration, don't you? I knew you would. So, returning then to our Christmas presents, right? We give presents, and the people to which we give those presents to, right? Uh, They must be received as such. They receive our Christmas presents by faith, in a sense. They exercise faith because they believe that you paid for it. They believe that you're willingly giving it to them. You're not going to be like, here's a Christmas present. No, just kidding, right? It's a, it's a real offer. They, they believe that, and, and every present must be received, right? You give a gift, and then that gift must be personally received, made your very own possession, Friends, it's the same with salvation. It's the, it's the same with God's free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. God has offered us his very best gift, the forgiveness of our sins, the, the declaration of, of a righteousness, and the hope, the promise of eternal life, and it's all wrapped up in a crimson bow stained by the very blood of his Son. Similarly, like those gifts, 
Each person must choose to receive or to reject that gift, to make it their own possession, believing that God purchased it for us. We must make it our own. One of the clearest texts that the Reformers clung to is Romans chapter 4. So why don't you turn there with me, turn uh, backwards in your Bibles a little bit to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. One of the clearest teachings on the difference between faith and good works. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Verse 4, excuse me. Paul says, Now to the one who works, that is for his salvation. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, that is for his or her salvation, but trusts God, who justifies, declares the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now notice the imagery here Paul uses to teach us about the difference between a wage and faith. The same thing is true when we go to work. You go to work, right, and you work your hours, and then you receive this little thing in the mail or you know, maybe you get it automatically deposited, right? But, but some of us, we still get these old school things called checks, right? And then we take them to the bank and we've, we've worked for them. What do we call those things? Pay checks, paychecks, right? Because we've worked for them. It's called a paycheck. It's not called a gift card, is it? It's a paycheck. We've earned it, right? A paycheck we earn, a gift card we receive, Here Paul says that the person who approaches God, not as to earn a paycheck, not not like I I deserve this, God, so give me heaven as my paycheck, but the one who approaches God, the one who approaches salvation, as if God is giving a gift card. It's purchased by him, but it's totally free for us. Paul says that one is considered righteous. That is the one who will go to heaven. So let me ask you, friends, how do you approach God? and heaven, and eternity? Do you approach it as if God is somehow paying you back? As if your entrance into heaven is earned? Or do you approach God as if he's handing you a gift card? He paid for it. You gladly receive it by faith. Friends, faith is trust in God, and it's trust in the promises of the gospel. It's not just mere doctrinal or mental assent. It's a personal step to receive the gift of God's grace to make you right with him. Because it's scripture alone, we are saved by God's grace alone. It's received by faith alone, but friends, there is a fourth sola, and it's sola Christus. That is, salvation is found in Christ alone. See, in the Reformation, the church once again discovered that salvation was by God's grace, it was through faith, but they also rediscovered that it was only through the finished work of Christ, his life and his death and his resurrection. The, pro- the reformers protested against other rival mediators, and they called the church back to Jesus as the sole mediator between God and man. Turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. I know we're going back and forth towards the end of your New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy. You get the Thessalonians, then you get the Timothys. 1 Timothy chapter 2. There in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells us this, for there is, for there is one God and 
one mediator between God and mankind. Who is that? He answers the question. There is one God, and there's only one mediator, one go-between, between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. See, while the Roman church held that, for instance, uh, in purgatory, the souls of people are helped into heaven by the prayers of the saints, or they held that uh, prayers could be offered to the saints, and that somehow prayers offered to the saints once dead would help them get into heaven, or even the ongoing sacrifice of Jesus offered over and over again in the Mass, that that was the avenue to get to heaven. Over and against that, the Reformers said no. They said no. It's only through Christ and his finished work alone. They said it's not through Mary, it's not through the saints, it's not through the mass. And if you want to apply it in our day, it's not through Muhammad, it's not through Buddha. No other avenue but Jesus Christ. Peter makes this abundantly clear in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. John Calvin, one of the great reformers of the time, in his institutes wrote this, Christ stepped in, he took the punishment upon himself, and he bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated, which simply means washed, the sins which made them enemies of God and thereby satisfied him. And then he wrote these words, We look to Christ alone. For divine favor. Sola Christus. So friends, let me ask you again. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way? That he is the, the way and the truth and the life? And that how many people come? No one can come to the Father but through me, he said. Do you believe that? You really believe that? Because, friends, if you really believe that, this is an exclusive statement in our day that will not fly for long. It is considered intolerant, and so will you. It is considered unkind, and you might be considered unkind. It is considered narrow-minded and even hateful towards those who aren't Christians. And you might be as well if you believe this. But, friends, it's true. Brothers and sisters, let me say it as clearly as I can. May we never let go of sola Christus. Because when we do, and if we do, we let go of Christ, and we let go of Christianity, and we let go of the gospel. So friends, stand on Scripture. Stand on grace. Stand on faith. Stand on Christ alone, but there is a fifth. All of this is for the glory of God alone. And this is the fifth sola, sola Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. The final sola of the Reformation clarifies God's ultimate purpose and goal in creation and in redemption, namely his own glory. It belongs to him, and it belongs to him alone. It is not to be shared. It is his central motivation in all he does, including saving me and you. One author says it well. He said, God is not a means to an end. God is not a means to an end. He is the means and he is the end. In proclaiming 
sola deo gloria. The reformers answered the question, what is the point of life? Why are we here? Why do we exist? And they said, to the glory of God alone. See, the Roman church at the time divvied up the glory in salvation. God got some for sure, but mankind got some as well by performing ritual and by meritorious works. And the reformers said no. In salvation, glory must be given to God alone. One place in the Bible that makes this so clear is Ephesians chapter 1. So why don't you take just a moment to turn there, if you will. Ephesians chapter 1. Turn left in your Bible once again. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul talks about the spiritual blessings that, uh, of the gospel, the spiritual blessings of salvation that God has lavished upon all who come to know him in verses 1 through 14, roughly. And in, in, in this great exposition of the salvation that we believe in, we see these little phrases which point us to the fact that, that our salvation is for God's glory. That was his intention. Paul says, that, that this salvation is for the praise of his glory. He says, it's to the praise of his glorious grace. He says, to the praise of his glory. He wants us to know that our salvation is for the glory of God. Not only had the Roman church robbed God of his glory and salvation, but also of his glory that we are to give him as Christians in everyday life. See, the monastic movement, that is the uh, trend towards monkery, if you will, moving away, right, separating yourself from the world, the hierarchy of the church, this divide between uh, laity and, 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 and the, the, the priests, if you will, had caused a divide in the minds of the masses, right? Secular and sacred. Secular and sacred. And the reformer said, this is not true. Everybody, all Christians, should live for the glory of God, whether you're a priest or whether you uh, are whatever it is that you do. And of course, they return to 1 Corinthians 10. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, so whatever you do, right, so whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And Martin Luther once said, a dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. And he's not denigrating a dairy maid. He's simply saying that all things that we do as Christians are done for the glory of God. It still applies today. Whether we're in the classroom or in the home or in the office or in the tractor or in the truck or at your desk, as Christians, whatever it is that we do, we aim to bring him glory. So I want to close our time this morning with the opening words of William Barclay. He said, a reformation begins with one person. He need not begin it in a nation. He can begin it in his home or wherever he works every day. If, if he begins it in God, no man knows where it will end. I guarantee you that Martin Luther did not know what his actions, where it would end. But it ended in thousands of Protestant churches, just like ours, proclaiming a faithful and true gospel of grace. The five solace. And friends, it's not over. The Reformation continues. And so on the 31st, as you're taking your kids trick-or-treating, and as they're wearing masks, and, and as they're getting candy, remember, yeah, that's all fun and good. But on that day, 500 years ago, a much more significant Reformation was born. The church was purified. And friends, we stand on their broad shoulders as a church and as Christians. Because of the five 
five solas, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God. Happy 500th birthday, Reformation. May there be many, many more to grow on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moment that we have. As we think back in history and time, we know that you are providentially moving. And 500 years ago, a huge significant action by one of your faithful followers that sparked a movement, this flame that quite literally expanded all across this globe. We are so grateful for men like Martin Luther and others, men and women, even children, who stood for the gospel of grace. They returned to scripture alone and they discovered that salvation is a gift of God alone. It's received by faith alone And it's found in Christ alone. And it's all to the glory of God alone. Lord, do a reformation in our day and in this church and in our lives. We pray and God's people said, amen. See you next.